This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Luke Carey, a husband, father, and co-host of the podcast, Catching Foxes, and Chief Development Officer for Spoke Street Media, a Catholic apostolic media company. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Luke discuss living an integrated Catholic life, merging experiences of the world with the church. They talk about the impact of the internet on our lives, race, and films, from Game of Thrones to Marvel to The Chosen. Luke shares his Catching Foxes podcast is a collision of faith and culture. And that's why, like, I'm Catching Foxes, I, I think one of the reasons why we started the podcast was we were just like, this is too hard. We need to talk about this. Like, it's just hard to be a Christian. And the only way I felt like we could do that in a way that was going to, I don't know if appeal to people is the right word, but to like at least create enough content was at the intersection of faith and culture. This is Living the Call. Luke Carey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here in an incredibly nice podcasting space. I don't typically record in a space this nice. This is, it, this is all Kyle Hyman. It looks super nice. Yeah, big uh, big ups to uh, Spoke Street. Is that the studio there? When do you, have you guys always had that? Uh, Kyle, uh, how long have we had this? About one year. So relatively new. Very cool. Where is it? It's so, uh, this is out in Fort Wayne in, um, Indiana. Indiana. I'm the, uh, I'm the chief development officer for spoke street media, a Catholic podcasting network. Yeah. So I've been here for about the Catholic podcasting network. (laughs) Yeah. The, I think probably one of the only, are are there really any other ones like at scale? Like that's like, you know, really doing stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar if there are, I'm not. Yeah. Are, so are you, are you like a nice person? Cause I can be kind of mean about like Catholic, about um, Catholic media. So feel free to say, Luke, don't, don't do that. This, no. this is not that L- show. Luke, th- this is your show. Number one. So um, wherever you. you want to take the conversation, typically for an audience of this show to know, we have kind of like a pre-call and we end up learning a little bit about each other. Talk, I talk about the audience mm-hmm. and I talk about what's on the show and where it came from and directions and all that stuff. Not so much in this case. We're starting off uh, just with a clean slate, but you should know, Luke, that this show is, uh, you know, a safe space for all conversations. Um, in fact, funny, because last week I had uh, Patrick Coffin on the show. I don't know if you know Patrick Coffin. I, I heard that you did. I am, I, am, I am aware of him, and I thought, bold move, Deacon. Yeah. Bold well, move. Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, my goal for this show at some point in the future, this is like, you know, my, my fantasy, is that yeah. I would have Cardinal Burke on episode 106 and Father James Martin on episode 107. That's, nice. that's what I want. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to I test these theories. I want to draw people towards, uh, you know, an understanding of one another. And I want to create, you know, forums for dialogue and for discussions. And that, by the way, that doesn't mean I agree with anything. In fact, I issued a mm-hmm. disclaimer for Patrick's um, episode, which came out uh, this week, uh, as we're recording anyway. And I will um, listen to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should you should check it out. I've I've known Patrick for like a decade, and we had a really we had a far ranging conversation. I mean, we did it here in studio. I think we talked for like two and a half hours about everything from like you know sleep apnea to like. Uh, politics and all kinds of stuff. But the thing that, the thing that struck me, Luke, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I was like, everybody was talking about this guy and refuting Mm -hmm. this guy and talking about like creating these videos and millions of views and all this. And nobody had actually invited him to come in and 
talk to him about it, right? Now, because I happened to know him for a long time uh, from Catholic Answers, and he was here in LA, I was like, let's just do a show and just say what you think, and I'll tell you what I think. And, you yeah. know, obviously we disagree on a lot, but, you know, we, we left uh, friends, and I think that's part of the gospel message. I agree. And it, it does make it a lot easier when you when it is a rooted in real relationship. Like the great thing about what someone like Matt Frad does on on Pint of the Aquinas is yep. he, you know, he his shows can be up, I think, like three to four hours, if not even like even um, um even longer. So he creates the space where you can actually kind of get to know a person. But for the for like all Tons of podcasters don't really have uh, they don't have that luxury or the skill set to to really be able to do that. So it makes those um, conversations hard because yeah. they're not rooted in relationship. They tend to be um, rooted in ideas, and mm. that's what got us into this problem in the first place. Well, that's and super so interesting. We, when you're able to do it from a, from a place of relationship, like I think that's really fascinating. But but that that speaks to a broader point, right? Which is like we're lacking in just this relational approach in general. I think we've gotten super transactional. Yeah. And uh, like, it's the internet's fault. Like, I'll be very clear. <laughs> this is the internet's fault. Like, I'm sure that Satan has, a, has like, has um, like place to play in all of this. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, like, I'm sure that there are other, but like, I truly believe as a person who like, like a decent part of my income comes from a podcast. So I am very dependent on set internet, but the, the, like the problem with the internet is either you grow or you die. Mm. There are really, those are your only two options. So to have, so to really have a discourse that takes time, that takes, that takes space that if anything, doesn't, I'm going to need to grow, but needs to actually settle down for a bit. That's almost impossible. Mm. And so I, I think like it's, you're right. I think it uh, is relationships is the only way that you're going to be able to actually um, make that um, happen because if not, it just becomes uh, team A against team B against team C against team D against, you know, whoever's next. I think that um, if the devil has a workshop, there's a lot of interesting products that roll off the conveyor belt. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, the internet and social media is one of those where I'm not saying he built the entire thing, but man, it is a strategic uh, genius that's, that's behind this thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, look, our job is to basically populate all of these different mission fields with the gospel and have got, you know, conversations about it and not shy away from them. Right. The answer is not, let's not use Google or oh, let's, yeah. or yeah. let's build Catholic Twitter. Right. That that's those those kind of approaches are natural, but they actually generally fail. So, yeah, I, I look at it as more as like, how can we go out into this mission field and Christianize and baptize? Right. That's like the huge mm -hmm. uh, Christian uh, tradition of taking stuff that's pagan and going like, hey, let's see if we can shape this thing, you know, or at least utilize it. So I agree with you. And I'm going to provide a little bit of pushback and I'm just qualified it. enough to be wrong. So, yeah. Also, I think my uh, I think there's an issue with my camera feed. So sorry, it's just it's blank on on my end. I don't know if you can see me or not. But yeah, no, I can't see you. Okay, uh, I don't know. I don't know um why, and I don't want to break this. So is, is it okay if I just um let that be? Yeah, for sure. Okay, Kyle's back. Hey, Kyle, the camera's dead, <laughs> but I don't know like what happened. So I didn't. I didn't I'm touching anything. Although it's very dramatic because you said you're going to push back, and then it's just like went black. Blank. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's great. <laughs> I'm waiting. Listen. I'm waiting for like this, uh, you know, a Sith Lord response. There you go. There we back. go. There we go. 
Listen, I'm I'm one half of I'm catching foxes. And yes. Anything we are, it's we are very dramatic. So it's I'm happy to provide that. So I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Hans Erzlund Balthasar. Sure. And in his epilogue, which he writes near the end of his life, he makes the argument that in it is incredibly hard to have conversion take place in a techne of centered culture mm. because there's no sense of God. You have replaced God with, um, with action devoid of real understanding or knowledge. Mm. And I don't think now the, like what people tend to do is, and they, they go straight, straight to the internet, but like, that's actually a result of the techne culture, which goes back like at least to the end of postmodernism. If not like, if not earlier, and I am again, just qualified enough to, to be wrong about this. But, um, so my, but my point is that, um, one of the thing that like Balthasar talks about, if that's the center of, um, our culture, mm. one of, one of the challenges is that it, it like lacks a body. It really lacks form. It lacks, it is, it is, it is an it is an empty corpse. Mm. And how do you convert? How do you baptize? How do you really evangelize a place that isn't actually unreal, but then kind of is, mm. you know, or like it's devoid of uh, what he calls the, I forget this. Um, basically, I, this is a very crude way to explain this, but like the God shaped hole. He, 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 so he makes the argument. It's easier to, to, to go and um, evangelize a, any um, any primitive culture than to really the, the, like try to the try to then try to uh, then try to um, evangelize in the West right now because they at least have an idea of uh, of a God or God they are yeah. open to the idea of God and we ha we have really we um, have rejected that so all that I'm being said I what like I'm wrestling with right now is. Is that baptism you are, I'm going to talk about, I believe it really is possible, but I, I think what I'm, what um, I'm wrestling with is, is it possible at the scale that we would like to see it happen? Mm. And I don't know if it actually is because yeah. one thing that's really fascinating and I, I, I promise I will stop talking. No, no, no. This. Luke, it's um, your show. That's right. It is, Luke, very it is little. Um, Luke time. Um, that's right. Buckle up kids. Uh, so I used to work for a great group called the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Uh, mm. They are a wonder. They are a hidden gem in the American Catholic Church, and they um, they go to. They are a Catholic presence where there quite um, literally is none, mm. where the population tends to be um, less than one percent Catholic. You actually have a poverty rate almost three times as high as as the national average, and the guy who began them, uh, his name was um, Father Howard Bishop, based out in Baltimore, I believe. He, he went to Harvard, uh, came from like very deep, uh, like deep money, and gave it all up to go and be a priest. And he saw there was this whole part of the United States, basically two-thirds did not have any um, Catholic priest at all. So he created a group to go and like be a priest in these areas. And he thought that he would just see mass conversions because of birth control and communism had like he thought like like that had made all of the major um urban all the major urban areas lost 
And he thinks in the rural parts of the country, they'll be much more open to the Catholic gospel. Or I, I, I hate to call it that, but like the true um, gospel. And he goes and it's like incredibly hard. And it's incredibly hard. And it's basically the same own problems that he that he encountered in these urban areas. And it's fascinating to me because if you like then that was in the uh, 20s and 30s and 40s when he started doing that. And if you take a look at like a lot of people who work at like parishes now, and I'd be curious to hear like um, mm. your take on this. Conversion is harder than it's ever been. Instead of being a group of 24, you've got a group of 10 the days of if you build it, they will come. Doesn't 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 really exist. And I think it's all part of this tech part of this techne culture, which has essentially it um, has rejected God, and it and and it and and it has replaced God with what can we do? And that makes and when you have like a techne space, that makes conversion even like really I'm a really hard. So, I, but I could be totally wrong. That's mm. a very long explanation. No, I love it. You kind I'm of, curious you, flood, to hear, like, you, you, you flooded think? the zone a bit, but let me, let me lob it back yeah, to yeah. you in a couple different ways. So number one, maybe the uh, dynamic that father Bishop, which by the way, very interesting name, right? Father Bishop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, are we confused or am I just trying to get into the deanery really fast? Um, <laughs> but the dynamic that he maybe discovered or was talking about is something that reminds me instantly of very gospel resistant parts of the world, like Japan, as an example, mm -hmm. the yep. sort of construct that you can evangelize on top of is sort of missing, right? Or it's oriented in a very different way. And so it's tougher to plant that seed and have it actually flourish given th that dynamic. So th there's definitely a lot of truth in that. The, the way I look at this idea of Christianizing or baptizing or using these platforms for the purposes of the gospel and how I think they can be effective, I draw from a principle that is very well known in the advertising and media space, which is called attribution. Basically, okay. back in the day, you used to run a TV spot and the cash register would light up, right? Or you would do a print ad and the cash register would light up. And very okay. famous, fam famously, a guy who's like the godfather of advertising, a guy named David Ogilvie back in the Mad Men days, said that, you know, I know that my advertising work, I know that 50% of my advertising works, I just don't know which, which half, right? So that, that was like this sort of joke. <laughs> yeah. And then we've evolved quite a bit now because what people would do is they would say, hey, we do a TV spot and the cash register rings. We did this newspaper ad and nothing happened. Therefore, let's stop doing newspaper. That was sort of the old way. Now, given the internet, what there is is these attribution models. And the mm -hmm. attribution model says, the sale of whatever it is, a car, a toaster, a vacation, doesn't matter, is the sum of a variety of activities and involve a variety of mixtures and ratios of different platforms being utilized in different ways. So in that same way, I think about evangelism. I'm not saying that Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, et cetera, in and of themselves convert, but they play a role in the attribution to conversion. And in that sense, they should be utilized Right. But not oh, if you think, totally. let's put a video out and gee, we didn't get a bunch of people show up to youth group. Therefore it failed. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the way that I think about that. But last point, the broader point, which you're hitting on, which I think is super right on is this idea that the method that we communicate the gospel is got to be different because we're living in a different moment. And I'll just 100% agree. One quick example. I was just talking about this recently with my wife, right? The idea that like in cultures that were Christian, 
the idea of having a kind of listicle approach to the faith, like, you know, let's go do the chair, you know, the, the um, spiritual works of mercy, corporal works of mercy, you know, go the precepts of the church, show up to communion once a year at a minimum, go to confession, like all of that kind of listicle way of living the faith made sense because the broader culture was already there. Right. Mm-hmm. So yep. like you just had yep. to kind of trim the edges, but now we're living in a world where the evangelical, I don't know, modality is all about to me living an integrated Catholic life, like literally yes. being a Christian everywhere. You're mowing the lawn. How are you doing that as a Christian? Yep. Right. You're driving on the highway. How are you doing that as a Christian? Because the culture is nowhere there to support you. So that's just some thinking based on what you said. No, I love that. No. And, and that's why I like, I, man, that's so um, fascinating. So like, um, just like based on like we, we talked about with regards to Christian witness, that's what Pope St. Paul VI is getting at with uh, evangelization in the modern um, world. One of, I think, the most important church um, documents of the last one, mm. one um, hundred years. It is incredible. And he talks about how if modern man pays attention to any, to like anyone who like teaches, and he's, he's um, talking about a person who teaches the um, um, Catholic faith, he does so because, because they are like witnesses. And he pays attention to like witnesses more than he does to teachers. And that's, I think you're 100% right. And that's really um, fascinating too about the, I forget what you called it. I apologize. Um, the attribution model. The attribution model, which I have heard that before. And that's actually good to know from just trying to get a like podcast ad standard. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I exactly. think it works. <laughs> um, but uh, people keep keep coming back for the most part um, is uh, that it really leaves it all open to human freedom. Mm. And that's like, I think that's a that's a thing that's super hard for a lot of particularly American Catholics is we just want what is what is the formula to make people convert? Just tell me. Yeah, I've got I've really have like one coin. How do I get these two coins? The two coins being mass conversion. And it's like, that's not how it works. It's yeah. just not how it works. The Holy Spirit is like it, um, is wild. I think it's a. Uh, Pope Benedict, uh, when he's writing as Ratzinger at that time, says um, his line that I love, and I'm still trying to wrap my my head around it. Um, what man um needs in every age is holiness, not strategy. Wow. And I, some people yeah. translate that as management, mm-hmm. but I think what's fascinating about that is that what you can do is actually put management at like at the service of that. So it doesn't cause the evangelization to happen. It actually um, creates the space where it can happen. For sure. And that's, yeah. and that's, and I think that's really interesting just because it's so like conversion is really hard because we live in like a, we, we live in like a, in a post American Christian culture now. And we that do. makes all this like really difficult. So how do you evangelize a space? Like, so go, on like, like go on to Twitter where actually uh, like, like a lot of stuff that people tend to push has roots in Christianity. If you look at things like equality, like overall kindness, all that stuff that like now are like, these are the things that count. Those come from the Christian um, of faith. That's where their um, roots are, yeah. but they have, but they have, they have like rejected the, the, the faith, but kept the parts that sound that like sound nice. Yeah. It's really fascinating. It's I a really that. fascinating I thing. love that Benedict quote too. I've got some mm-hmm. of my favorites from him. Um, the, my attitude on all of this is that, the, you know, what's, what's true has always been true. 
And the Holy Spirit has just different degrees of emphasis depending on the age. And mm-hmm. I've talked about this dynamic on this show a number of times, but, but that, that's my sort of feeling. And so one of the things that I feel in my own personal life of, as that additional emphasis, always been true, but an emphasis right now at this moment, maybe for us in our time and place, is this idea of relationship right? Mm -hmm. Relational approaches. And yeah, that is a strategy in a way, but it's also a strategy deeply rooted in the gospel experience, right? It it is about walking with people and, and, and Mm -hmm. sort of shaping, frankly, that's the reason, and I know we skipped all of this part, but it's fine. We, sometimes we do it, sometimes (laughs) we don't, but for people that don't know you, uh, I mean, you, you have a show, a co-host of a show called uh, Catching Foxes with uh, Michael mm-hmm. Gormley, who who's referred to as Gomer on the show. And, and, you know, part of the reason that I really thought your show is really cool and, and have for a while, even though I haven't been like an aficionado of the show, is conversations about faith intersecting with culture, right? And so mm-hmm. this idea of walking with of these relational approaches happen a lot in that context, yep. right? It's not like somebody goes off to a convent and like lives in this sort of monastic cell for a while and then suddenly has to then get recharged to go out and talk to people who are not in that world. It's about how we live that thing out in, in that world. And so the, the, this intersection, this confluence of things is a very real thing that we have to contend with for our time and place in a way that didn't happen 500 years ago or whatever. I agree. Yeah. And it's, it's really, um, it is very hard to be a Christian right, right now. It is very, very hard. It's extremely isolating. You tend to have to choose between at least your own family or like, or your friends, if like, if not both. Um, it is very hard. And often people point to the culture as the reason why. And there's some truth to that because like, that's why culture is so, so important. Like it is a real thing that actually impacts our lives. But at, at, but um, at the same time, Culture is inherently good, I think, or it's at least I'm neutral, but it is extremely important. And and when it's good, I think it's important to really try to, you you really have to cling to it. Like, that's why I love the Coen brothers, because I think they stumble in, like, in to Christianity over and over and over and over and over again. And I don't know if they are, I believe they are Jewish. Yeah, they are. I don't. And, but like they, I think they are obsessed with truth or like yeah. what's real, like what's good. I, um, and so they can't, if you're trying to make real honest stuff, you're going to stumble in, in to the truth. I think you see this with like, a, like a ton of the Barbie, uh, about stuff that's in the film and in, in the film like Barbie, I know there's a lot of debate, like in like, I'm in Catholic circles about that. And I have I'm tons of thoughts, but um, I will say that it does stumble in to truth. Yeah. And as Catholics, we can choose to, we can choose to ignore that, or we can try to um, engage um, with that. And I have found that my, I'm less insane when I am trying to engage with like, with uh, like with the culture, because mm. when I don't, it just feels less, it feels like less I'm a human and it feels extremely alienating, which is really why the podcast came about in the first place was just, I was just, I'm desperate for the show that I made. Yeah. Like I needed it. Not, not to like, not to make it. I, I just, I am needed that show to like, to exist. Cause I was dying inside without. It. Yeah. It's a great show. I heard a little bit of your Barbie uh, episode. Thank you. Barbie and Oppenheimer. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, no. I just it's, wanted it's, to talk about um, Oppenheimer the whole time, but instead we just we just like um, went on Barbara. I was like, I have so many thoughts on Oppenheimer. This is a wonderful film, perhaps like a masterpiece. Instead, we're talking about a, you know Barbie for two hours. Yeah, and somehow they got uh, like uh, merged into this kind of branding icon, right? Like Brangelina or something. It just became this oh Barbie gosh. Oppenheimer. Okay, kind of so f- with like with um, your advertising background, mm-hmm. how insane is that? That like that happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to determine whether or not it was strategic or not. Right. Because mm-hmm. you could, you can make the rising tide lifts all boats argument. Um, but there was something that happened kind of culturally. I think a lot of young people drove that. Right. Um, first mm-hmm. of all, the Barbie movie was not made for kids R- irrespective. And I haven't seen it. So you got to educate me on this, but irrespective of whether or not it was good, bad, whether or not it had truth or not, it, you're, you're taking a franchise like Barbie, which is, you know, basically built on single digit aged girls and you're mm-hmm. making a movie that is PG 13, right? So yep. effectively removing at least technically a huge part of your constituency. So clearly the movie was not made for the root or the base of the actual brand love that exists, but it's also this kind of broader four quadrant thing. Everybody knows Barbie and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got this other thing, Oppenheimer, which is, relatively obscure because people don't know history, right? So like who really mm-hmm. knows who Oppenheimer was and the Manhattan yeah. project and all that stuff. And, and suddenly like that same crew, that sort of tween, you know, late Gen Z is like just riveted by this thing. Right. And mm-hmm. so I don't get it. There's some, there's a lot of commentary there to be given. That's why I'd love to hear from you. Um, but, uh, but that was my observation. And by the way, having seen neither film. There, so I, um, I'm, I'm not actively involved with this because I'm really trying to get off of Twitter as a whole, but I definitely pay attention to people that are big in what's called a film Twitter. So it's people on Twitter who, who I'm going to talk about movies. Mm. So it didn't surprise me that people were very excited about this. What surprised me was like, how was that? It was my mom who then got excited about it. Right. You know, so because on film Twitter, when they announced both like both of the films coming out on the same day, people were um, losing their minds because they're two of our best directors are going to release um, original uh, like films that are not a sequel on the same day. And everyone was just like, this is and that's where the Barbenheimer. I started to like I started to hear that like that word. I don't know if it came from film film Twitter. but That's when I am um, first heard it months ago. And people were so, or like, just so excited about it because not because of what those films were about, but because of who were making those films, and they thought it'd be great to see those 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 people doing these like these films. Yeah, and I and so yeah, I don't. And I, it could have been a thing that was, but it was um, it was like really. I was so pumped. I was so pumped to. I think watch it was probably like a confluence of things, right? The fact that they sort of same day their original. In other words, the, the, the bringing together the two names is probably the result, at least in part, of people seeing both films simultaneously or very mm-hmm. close to one another, right? So it's like, yep. we're going to go and make an event out of this and then, you know, talk about it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my I, I know because I have an 18-year-old son. He's, he's my youngest. I've got five, um, and the, nice. the youngest is 18. And when he talks to me about films that he's excited to go see, it's a rare thing. He loves film, but he doesn't talk about it very much. The last two times that it happened is he saw Nefarious on his own. I had nothing to do with it. Never even mentioned it. He saw mm-hmm. it before I did. And he's like, Dad, Nefarious, good movie. You should really check it out. I really like the way that it was done. 
and it was unexpected. And I was like, he gave a little review about it. And so when he does that, it's unusual. The huh. other one was Oppenheimer. Even before he went to go see it, he's like, I'm excited about this movie. And I was like, why? What's that about? Like, you know, I, I just didn't, I didn't get it. Yeah. And it's, I think there's something, um, one of the cool things about, about the internet is it has made people, uh, people like more informed now. I think you see this with sports, the average sports fan, they know a ton more than say a person did one, 100 years ago, because there's just tons of data. There's just tons of um, information. People have been, um, people have been, I'm hearing about it for, for a, um, a long time. And now it's very easy to get anything, anything that you want. And I think one thing that has happened is there's a lot of stuff now on the internet where people are starting to say, here's why oh, this is good. Here's why um, this is bad. Here's, I wish there was a bit more of, of um, here's what this means, but there is a, there is a bunch when we do not lack for any type of analysis as, as a culture. The, my, my like issue is the type of analysis that tends to dominate the conversation. But I think there was this sort of, I think that helps build this height, which is, oh, the guy who's making this film, he's really good. And this is a serious movie mm. and he's kind of in his prime. So this could be really, really good. And I just kind of like bring it back to the church. I think the church does a, does itself a, not a huge, not a, not like a, not like not a gigantic one, but still the, it, it really is like a disservice when the church doesn't engage with what's going on within the culture or if the church is, I might have to un, unpack this part of it. If the church tries to all always unpack it through the lens of what does this mean for the church or what does mm. this say about as opposed to it being about like, what's this other film about? Let's do it from the standpoint of like our faith. It's instead, here's what, here's what I'm with this. Here's what this, like, here's what I'm with this film has to say. Here's how it could, it could apply to our um, faith, which are two um, different um, other things. And I think that like, I think that, that the former is way more interesting than the, than the latter. Is it is it kind of the same distinction? I, I remember hearing you say on a video, or or maybe maybe on your show, I forget, but you were talking about um, kind of the dawn of the podcast. And, and and for folks to know, you've actually you're like uh, the the podfather in some ways, right? I mean, you've had you've had your show catching foxes for about a kind decade, of. so you definitely have had a lot yeah. of experience with this. Uh, so you're well situated at Spoke Street. I'm sure that's why they brought they brought you in. <laughs> but was, you yeah, talked about at reason. one point that it wasn't so much. It was you were really excited about Catholic voices being on podcasts, not necessarily Catholic podcasts. Yes. Is it is yeah. it something similar what you're describing? Yes. Yeah. So it's what Hans Erzon Balthasar calls the calls the theological aesthetic, which is my faith in on the forms what I'm trying to create, as opposed to trying to fit what I create in 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 to my faith it's a very basic description of that so yeah. some people might really argue but from for, from everything that like i have read of his about that that's really what i'm trying to get at, is that i think that leads to endless like possibilities which instead when we have the aesthetic the like the logical it just really isolates the faith and it's really not going to be interesting to anyone unless mm. they really care about the faith. So it's like, 
it's really the old, it's like one of the oldest, it's one of the oldest arguments for why is Christian rock bad is because it like isolates the stuff and it's just like an off brand uh, thing. I think there's other, I think that's a whole other, I th- there are things that actually make that thing good, but that's a whole, that's like a whole um, other thing. But um, the, why I'm excited about having, I'm a Catholic voices is because there's things that we have to say that people like, can we can make people's lives better. There, there's things that like we can, I'm talking about, there are, they're, they're going to, be insights we have that if we actually do engage with this stuff, it will bridge the gap between like faith, between faith and reason, yeah. which is the great crisis of our age. Those two are, are, are split. And we tend to like focus on the reason part a lot, how there's no, we don't have prayer in schools. God's not in the right. public space, but what people don't pay attention to as much is the church is extremely isolated. So not only do we not have God like, Within, like, I'm a reason now. We don't have the world within the church, and the church exists for the world. Yeah. We've now isolated everything, and that's a that's kind of a a challenge, and most people haven't really understood yet. Or, or I'm sorry, they. I don't think anyone's really tried to address that because I think we're just starting to see. Oh, this is the kind of the other side of this. It's like we always. I'm talking about the like the like um, lack of God in in the public space, but like, what about the lack of the public space within our church? Yeah. How, like, cause those two things back in the day, they were all merged on 1000 years ago. They're all just one thing. And it's somehow they have now been, they've now been split and we're still trying to wrestle with, with the consequences of I, that. I think that a lot of this too is sort of a fundamental, maybe a, an, a what do they call those? A, uh, an unearned, what do they say in sports? Like when you, uh, when you screw up and it's your fault, like, you know, you kind of took an unforced error. Unfor- yeah. Yep. So it, it's kind of like an unforced error on our part. And a lot of it has to mm-hmm. do with uh, ecclesiology from my perspective. One of the things that I think about when, with what you just described is this kind of misunderstanding of what the parish is. I talk about this all the time and mm-hmm. usually to clerics, cause they're the ones that kind of need to understand this better. And it's like, you think of parish, like my line is a parish is not a building. Right. Agreed. A parish yep. isn't even the church building. Yep. Right. A parish is a canonical region. It's mm-hmm. a footprint. Right. Yep. It's the church of God in that time and space. And yep. so and if you ever go into these like, uh, you know, meetings that clergy go to, like deanery meetings and whatever, or even maybe even in some parishes, they'll actually have the canonical map on a wall somewhere. And is so you it, can see fascinating? Oh, the, the parish, yeah. my parish is this thing. Right. And you get to actually look at it. And, and, and this idea that the parish is everyone, I'm talking about Catholic, not Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, homeless, uh, somebody who's on a tent on a sidewalk that's in your, yep. that's your parish. And so, and we see even divisions in parishes among, well, this is a school thing. This is a church thing. I mean, like even at the super micro level, there's a misunderstanding of what that is, but more broadly, it's like, what's the, what is the church and, and what's the church calling this idea of the war uh, of the church serving the world and the world being in, in the church. Like there's a lot of misunderstanding about that in my experience. And I think that that at least in part leads to some of these uh, challenges that we're experiencing. I agree. I, I think they're all like at the root caused by our um, culture not being rooted in God. It's rooted in what do I do? Yeah. And there's riches in the niches, right? Which is now on steroids anywhere you go. But that's been the case for a long time now. 
And so we just continue to we just continue to isolate things. And I think you had talked about this about um, this earlier. That's not I'm a Catholic. We are an integrated people called to called to lead integrated um, lives. Christ doesn't demand ten, like ten percent of us. He he demands all of us, our entire being, as a gift for himself and others. Love God with your whole um, like heart, mind, and soul, and love people as you love yourself. Right. So I'm drawing a blank, which I shouldn't do, but I've been in the car for like two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> so I am sorry about that. But uh, that's yeah. Like okay. So let me ask you this then. Yeah. Do you think parish hopping is wrong? I well, we know the answer to it on a strict level. It is right. We we have mm-hmm. a there's a sort of a canonical description of this. So there's a, like you have a parish or a church that corresponds to where you live. So Mm -hmm. the, the kind of factual answer is you shouldn't do it. The reality of it is, especially where we are today and depending on where you live, because that's a big part of it here in LA, Mm -hmm. we have 400 parishes. Okay. So you're like spoiled for choice. I've got like four that I can throw a rock to and hit right now from here. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes because we've gotten a little bit overly specialized in some parish settings, we're like, oh, this is the one where there's a youth thing. This is the one that's for mm-hmm. Latinos, which is like, we can get into that too. That's a whole thing that I think yeah. is really horrible. We've kind of forced some of that, in my opinion. So it's hard to rein, rein it back in if we're setting things up in that way. If it mm-hmm. is truly the church of God for this place, then the answer becomes a lot more clear. So I think I'm a little bit mixed I'm kind of like the, you did an episode recently about MMA and you guys were debating about whether or not this was moral. I'm kind of in that mixed camp about it. Well, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I tried, I really, I tried to say, no, this is the parish that's, you know, that, um, is within our boundaries. I'm, we're going, this is going to be our, like our parish. So I went, um, I joined parish council. Um, the only reason why I even stopped parish council was just because I, st- I started grad, grad school and it was, it was just too much. And I struggled. The homilies were tough. Mm. The over, I didn't like the liturgies, which I don't think, I don't know. That's, that's a whole other debate. It just, it was for me, it was like, Oh my gosh, I'm trying. And then when, when my daughter was born, I was like, I can't, <laughs> I just can't. I just, I, and I, I felt like I, I feel like it was going to be a disservice to her to yeah. build up roots at a church that was just so, um, not engaging is the wrong word, but just like dull and lukewarm and mm. just, and this, I struggle a lot with this because there are times when I'm like, well, just then change it or then be involved or just get over yourself and just accept it. Like, am I, because our, what should our disposition be towards when we are like at mass? It is one of um, a receptivity. And I find that mine tends to be one of uh, one, like I just, I want to, I want to be entertained and that can even mean all the old a chance in like, in, in like a beautiful old church. Cause it just looks amazing. Now I do find that that helps me be way more like receptive yeah. to stuff where it's easier to be receptive towards that. But I just, I've been going to the folk of masses my entire life and I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> I just, I, and so, and I honestly don't want my daughter to be around. Like, so it's like, what do I do? Like, what do I do? You know, and yeah. that's why I'm more on the side of like, if it's real, you have to, I think it's a lot of um, discernment. And if it's really for the service of like your vocation, honestly, then I think it makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's a reality you know, in any case. And I would say that like, you know, as you go up the, 
morality ladder, right? There's really terrible reasons to do it and probably some more morally justifiable ways to do it. Like the, the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, there's carpet in the sanctuary and I just, it's horrible looking. And I would agree with you. It is. But that as a sole reason, probably not a good one, right? Agreed. Some of the stuff that you're yep. talking about, maybe a lack of reverence, maybe mm-hmm. a lack of um, liturgical orthodoxy. And, 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 you know, by liturgical orthodoxy, I'm speaking very broadly. I'm not talking about a type or form of I, mass. Yes, right? I agree. You know what I'm talking about, but just mm-hmm. for the sake of the audience. Because yep. um, it's not like, I mean, look, I love the traditional Latin mass, the times that I've experienced it, which haven't been that many, but it's not my, it's not my jam. That's not my thing. Um, and, and I think, but that has nothing to do with whether or not you approach liturgy as, um, as what it is, right? This sort of uh, fulcrum of the spiritual experience and obviously the Eucharist being a real encounter with the actual person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. If that is not supported, advanced, understood, if you can't see that reflected in what's going on, it makes it really hard, really hard. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. not on them. That's on us. Then I also, I mean, clergy, right? If, if we're not leading and advancing that kind of idea. So I, I guess there'd be kind of good and bad reasons uh, to do it. You know, um, the, the, the best example of, or the worst, depending on how you look at it, which I kind of touched on a second ago, is this idea of the Latino parish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Luke, you and I, I think may have discussed this in some previous conversation, but right now the church in the U.S., you know, 40 some odd percent is Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. go younger, like under 18, it's like 65%, Yep. right? So you can make an argument that the whole church is Hispanic, but rather than that, what a lot of dioceses still have is like dedicated Latino parishes. Is and to wild? me, that's bananas. Yeah. That, that, that makes zero sense. And, and if I was, say, a family who wasn't Hispanic and showed up there and it was like, this is the Latino church, I would know that I don't belong there. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so that's sort of like the the most binary example of how to, you know, how we do some things incorrectly, in my opinion, because we foment that idea of parish shopping in a lot of respects. Yeah. Yeah. And it, this is kind of one of those unspoken things that I think if you look at the broader church dialogue, that this conversation has been rejected by a lot of people because I think it comes across as being too progressive, whatever that um, means. Yeah. Like, and it's really a shame because this is actually like, no, we need to talk about this. <laughs> like, like this, is a, this is kind of a problem. And, yeah. and uh, you're right. It's the future of, of the church. And it, um, I, I think about how I'm guilty about this, you know? So I used to work in ministry at the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. I directed the adult office as, as well as started a bunch um, of like youth ministry stuff there. And it was very white. Now it, is almost Cincinnati. If you are a Catholic, odds are you have a German on background. So that's, that's just, that's just, that is reality there. So it's not, you don't have as much of a Hispanic population in, in that part of um, Southwest uh, of Southwest Ohio, as you do on the East coast or, uh, or uh, like I'm certainly out West, but it's there and, and it's absolutely growing. And they, it was not a reflection of who, of who attended anything that, um, that we did, there was um, some, and it, I, I had a hard time with that. Like, I, I mean, but in the sense that I felt I'm guilty, but didn't really do a lot about it. I, I, I we did have some um, conversations about how could, how could we better integrate a more, a more diverse group. Yeah. And the answers, um, it really um, seemed to be 
just support what they're doing with within within their own communities, mm. and like build up build 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 uh, build up leaders in that in that space. Which is one thing that I regret that I wasn't able to do during my time there, just because I I uh, I'm left before we did that. But it, it was a thing that was really on my mind because it just um like what I think what I think a lot of people don't know is that the the Hispanic a portion of the of the a of the American church has been around for ever. Like like it's it's just it's it's just been slowly growing. Yeah. And actually if you really I'm gonna take a look at a lot of the growth that we experienced we experienced during uh post post the second world war, that really comes about. It's not it's it's actually a decline but we saw this like over like this like like I'm a huge increase because you had way more Hispanics coming uh coming t- to mass or just to or, or just to the US as a um as like a whole and people were having more kids yeah during that point in time and yeah. so you think it's growth but it's not it's actually I'm declining based upon who should have been there based upon um baptisms we sh- should have been like way bigger there's a lot of stuff that's going on simultaneously, right? But the the actual stats, if you look at the census data, about two generations ago in 1960, about 4% of the country was Hispanic, 4 or 5%. Mm-hmm. Now, you're still talking about millions of people. So to your point, it's like not like they didn't exist. They've been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward to today, it's 20%. Okay, so wow. from 4 to 20 and at a time when on an absolute basis, the entire population has been growing. Right. So not only growing in terms of number, mm-hmm. but also growing in terms of share. And it's been a dramatic increase. Right. So and, and a lot of that has impacted um, the church. Your point about, you know, and I appreciate the vulnerability or the mea culpa on, on some of this. Um, I've had that dynamic happen on this show before, too, when we talk to the extent we talk about these things. But um, it takes work. But it's also just really simple, too. It's a relationship. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because and I'm not pushing back, but I always wonder when I hear like, hey, you know, in Cincinnati, there's not, there actually wasn't that many Latinos or wherever it may actually be. My question is, well, do you really know? Because if Cincinnati, and I'm not saying the bishop did this because I have no idea what he did, but if in Cincinnati, the Latino church was down the street and you never went there, like, how would you really know, like, what the Latino Catholic experience was like? Right. So it, it, mm-hmm. it, th- there's also those questions, but, um, but you know, the, the, the more interesting point, which I, I want to get your perspective on is this idea that somehow these, the discussion around these topics is kind of left of center. Right. I get that mm-hmm. vibe too. And you should know about me. Like, I mean, first of all, I'm a child of God and I'm a Catholic and I'm not, uh, I, the, the things that come below that in terms of Democrat, Republican, all those different things are like a country mile below the idea that I'm a child of God and I'm a Catholic. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's my Agreed. starting point. Having Agreed. said that, everybody's got an ideology and mine by and large is right of center. Mm-hmm. But it, when I talk about some of these things, you know, the, the, this subject, the whole Latino church and all that, I noticed from a lot of my, you know, peers that are ideologically aligned, this kind of sense of like, wait a minute, where are you going with this? Right. Are right. You gonna, yeah. Like, like well, and, and it starts getting weird. Like the temperature drops a little bit. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. a really fascinating thing. It's the same thing that happens with homelessness because um, that's one of my ministries with my wife. Same kind of deal. It's like, wait a minute, where are you going with this? And, and, and that, I think, is something that we need to check and own, right? That we, w- folks who may be 
ideologically align more on the right or who consider themselves conservative or even traditional. It's yeah. like, why do we have this thing that we don't, we don't want to go there? Yeah. So I thought about this a bunch. I think it's because as I think it's not that it is a, um, a uniquely American thing, but I definitely think there is an, there is an, there is an Americanness aspect of this. That's like really fascinating because we are a culture of immigrants. You, you can't change that. Like I've got a family who, who have been in Ohio. We think since like the um, 1600s, Wow, but we can, I mean, that's how, that's how, that's how Ohio and I am. It's a little sad, but, um, <laughs> but like they came, we know if, if that group is who we think they are, they came from England. So mm-hmm. they, at some point in time, they were new here and we are, we are a, a, a country that's not, we don't share an ethnic background. We share an ideology almost. And it's not, and it's, it's not unnecessarily a bad one. Um, but one of the things that's so interesting about, about us is we are so individualistic. And part of that is because we have a pluralistic, uh, we have a pluralistic country because we don't share a religion. We don't share and like a ethnic background. We're this hodgepodge of stuff over, you know, 300 um, years of just stuff. And so it's kind of a mess. But then also you also like have the practical part. This, this is really um, like one of the reasons why I think um, so. I spent two years in um, extremely rural Idaho in a state the size, sorry, in a county the size of New Jersey with 16,000 people who live. There. It was something. And um, actually it was incredible, but it was just it, it was a real it was I'm not a use to that at at all. And there were like, there were parts of the era that I didn't go to because if I got them lost and if there was a huge, and if we had a really bad snowstorm, I was dead. Yeah, you're dead. Like deader than dead. Like I am not going to survive any type of like a pop, any type of like, hey, you need to like, I'm going to rough it for a bit. I am dead. I'm the first one to go. And, um, and that's, and there, that's like a real thing. And so you have to be this kind of like hardened individualistic, I take care of myself and my own. And that's how we've always been because those are real things that have always existed because we are a country where like, you know, 500 um, years ago, there's nothing here, mm-hmm. you know? So you, it was all built from like, from, uh, from scratch and was incredibly difficult. And so it rewarded people who, who could have that sort of entrepreneurial, I'm going to go and do it, pull me up, by the bootstraps. We love the idea of a self-made man. And that is so anti-Catholic. <laughs> like it just, it's, I mean, if look at any of your quote unquote conservative popes, let's like take like someone like Pope, uh, public Benedict, John Paul II. They talk, I mean, Pope Benedict, I think it's not a book, but he has a thing where he says, there's no such thing as a self-made man. Mm. It is impossible. You cannot unmake yourself. Yeah. And there is a thing about us Americans that it makes us deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, it rubs because us the like, wrong way. Because yes, I can. the, the yeah. idea of a self-made man or that frontier mentality seems so virtuous. It seems like oh, well, that's all about valor and you exactly. know, adventure and like it's great. And it is the that's the, that's like the premise of Mad Men, right? Is he can Don Draper can continually reinvent himself and like his whole arc isn't that it's wrong to do that. It's that he had the chance to do it and he didn't do anything with it. 
Mm. He just served himself. Mm. That's in which I, I love that show. But um, to, to your point, like why does race then like um, make us uncomfortable? I think it's because it implies that that's that like that, like a self-made man. That's that type of like individuals that, that it's all down to the person isn't quite as real as like it attacks one of our core values. Mm. Which is that if you just fixed yourself and if you like um, fixed your family, it would be fine. And it's like, well, what if they're actually fine and they don't um, need fixing and it's just you're just shutting them out because you don't uh, see them like are, and that's 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 hard. That's a really hard thing to try to because particularly in Catholic circles, it's been on the conservative side. <clears throat> I'm sorry about that, where we have seen, I don't know if the most growth is right. I don't have the data really back to back that up, but it, we've definitely seen the most stuff happening. Everyone who's creating content right now, for the most part, that people are paying a, I'm going to attention to the top Catholic po- uh, podcasts, they all have a conservative bent yeah. to them. And I don't think that, I think that that's, that's just where the church has been. Well, I think, I think some of it is obvious in the sense that if you're going to be uh, kind of really left of center, super progressive and Catholic, and that's going to be the subject matter of your show, it's going to be nearly distinguishable, indistinguishable, sorry. I'm still getting the echo in my headphones, so it's driving me bananas. Um, but it's going to be indistinguishable from a lot of the stuff that's out there that's secular. You know, there's a lot of mindfulness and kindness and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. There's so much of that. So if you kind of mirror that, it's like you're competing. It's a competitive market thing. We got many more competitors there, but if you've yeah. got this sort of thing, that's very anti-cultural and or anti-pop cultural in a way, counter-cultural in a way, um, it's going to draw a higher intensity, deeper audience. It may not be as big potentially, mm-hmm. but, but you can see where an attraction is going to develop over that thing. So it's a fine line, right? It's yeah, like engaging with the culture. Um, you know, you mentioned Mad Men. I've been watching Suits like uh, on Netflix for a while, which is sort of like the the 21st century version okay. of Mad Men, even though they were made in similar times. Um, but but you, you know, you talk about engaging with the culture, and we have to, and we have to do it in a way where we can draw what's good and true from it and apply exactly. it in various ways. But you also can't go too far. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't replicate the culture as an avenue to draw people to Jesus because then you're just competing with significantly more people who probably do it better than you. Well, and I think that one of the things that's like very tough for all of us to, to accept right now is you have to wrestle with this. You have to, like you mm. have to wrestle um, with the face. Is this real or not? Like, I don't know about you, but if I stopped, if I stopped practicing, I think um, that my mom and my sisters would be like, that's kind of weird, but okay. If my dad, who uh, he died uh, 15 years ago, when, when he was my age, if he were to tell his mom, well, okay, when he was in his early 20s, let me put it this way, if he had told his mom he wasn't going to practice the faith anymore, she would have like beat yeah. him, like yeah. actually assaulted him. Yeah. And then disowned and, him if he didn't repent. Yeah. Yeah. And now that type of like, I have to go to this because I just do like that doesn't really exist anymore for the most part. So you it means you have to like engage like, is this real or not? And that's why I think like in diving into the culture stuff is so important because that's where the work happens. Like Christ. Sorry. No, no, no. I was. Go, go ahead. ahead. Finish your thought. I think like I think in 
in the gospel, Christ continually points to how um, a violent conversion can be. And I, that's, that's a bit hyperbolic, mm. but how it's not easy. Yeah. And it takes time. It, it, you know, it, it is a process. It's a process and it's a difficult one because you're carrying a cross daily, right? Mm-hmm. That's the point. The cross is the way to, is the path, right? One, I, I heard a homily once, uh, one of my favorite uh, priests that I've worked with, my old uh, pastor is, um, was made a Monsignor and he's since retired. Monsignor Martin Slaughter, shout out to you. Um, but he used to talk about God's throne being a cross. Right. It's like you think of this Ooh, opulent seat yeah. with like velvet and gold things. It was like the throne of God is this cross. It's a complete contradiction. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a it's it's a total, um, uh, you know, thing that we can't process very well. But that is the grappling, the struggle. That is this sort of uh, trying to make sense of this thing. And and that, that's why, I, like when I talk about youth, you know, and I even hate those des- young adult is probably my worst, uh, my most hated designation known to man <laughs> as a marketing guy. Young adult. Yeah. Why don't we just why don't we just spray pesticide at them? <laughs> what does okay? it even mean? Yeah, <laughs> right. You want to keep people from here? Call it young adult. Yeah. You know, you're so I say. Explain my job when I was the director of the young adult office. I would say I'm the diocese answer. To millennials. Yeah, there you go. Like, like, here we go. We're that just trying it, to figure out. Oh, because like, like, like mm. that at least is clear. And the irony yeah. there is now the top in a millennial is like 42. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So this, it moves that pretty is quick. Me. Yeah. You know, but um, I forgot where I was going. And sorry, I'm, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you're no, no. no like, it, you're good. Term, this happens. I mean, uh, um, this happens. Oh, you know where adults. I was going to go? The, the, where, I, where I tried to cut in a second ago is you talked about engaging with the culture and you're, you guys do this right on catching foxes. That is mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of vibe and are, and I know you mentioned Oppenheimer as an example recently, Barbie, et cetera, but can you think of like things that are culturally happening right now that maybe are interesting to draw from, right. To find the truth in that maybe you've used in a lot of conversations Ooh, lately yeah. and said like, this is a really cool thing. Ooh, oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, trying to think here. My, I, I, I admittedly have just because of grad school and um, life, I'm not as engaged with like culture as much as I, w- as, as I would like to be. Plus everything's just been like slow. Probably the MCU still, I would say. And yeah. I, which, it feels very updated and, and the MCU is a weird, odd thing now, but I'd say that's probably a big thing. Um, i trying to think what else. The Marvel cinematic universe for yeah, folks yeah. who may not the Marvel, know. Oh, Although they should Sorry know, they should know. Come on. Yeah, I'm like, it's just, uh, oh my gosh, it was so, that whole thing was crazy. Um, I mean, man, I'm drawing a blank, which I feel so bad. I should not be drawing a, I, I, I find that I'm turning, um, well, it's, it's just kind of weird because post-COVID, which we're still like in, in mm-hmm. the infancy stages, that like all of the stuff was put on pause, right? Yeah. And so everything's just weird. Like we're, I don't think we're going to be done with this till like the end of the 20, uh, 20s where life will feel like it did back in 2019 where it's just like, yeah, we just exist and there are, are movies all the time. And like everything is so weird because you have all, like, um, so there's not a, actually like, there's like a ton of, it's so weird now because there's a ton of content, but there's also not a lot of like, it's hard to find it. Yeah. You know? And, and so I think for me, but the stuff that I'm drawing from the most that I probably am finding like the most like, wow, this is so good. Besides the Coen brothers entire catalog, I'd say it would probably be Harry Potter and game of Thrones. Mm. 
I still just go back to those on that in the uh, that in the MCU as just like wow when that was at its best, and there I mean particularly with Game of Game of, Game Thrones, of Thrones there are some major issues that I think if people were to say hey it's wrong to watch I'd be like yeah you know what you're probably right yeah um, and I'm, I'm sure you probably I'm sure you've heard that oh yeah we yeah I, I remember we were going back and forth with Matt Frad like we had like these Marco Polos going about this we had things on text message it was actually like really kind of a fun because he, he was like i think your guys are wrong and we were like no because like like why we one of the reasons why we want to make our show about the um about about the intersection of faith and culture was the, there was this aspect of like we have to wrestle with this right now because this is extremely Im- important and we're just not i'm doing it and two, I just wanted the freedom to talk about whatever we wanted to because I'm a fan of podcasts that are much like this. Like it's very open. Yeah. And it's like, for, you know, we're, we are definitely of a very specific era. Like if um, I like to view podcasts as bands almost and how one influences yeah. the other. And we're from a style like from 2007 to around 2012, 2000, I'm a, th- 2000, I'm a 13. So you're more tech like productivity. And your comedy podcast, those were for the most part, the really big ones. And there are some sports. So like we, if we were to have like a Mount Rushmore and per, in terms of the, the podcasters that like we love, the first person to be on there would, would be Merlin Mann, hmm. who he's a big, he is a tech like productivity guy who just like was like, he ran tons of podcasts, him and like I'm Bill Simmons helped like, and, and the Nerdist podcast, like kind of like made modern on podcasting. And, um, and so we, I don't know where I was going with that. I, I apologize. But I, I think for me, like right now, the big stuff probably would be Harry Potter, Game of Thrones. Um, what do you think is the, the what's the why behind Game of Thrones? Because you, you talked about this earlier, right? Not just sure. the what, but the why. So let, let's take it from a broad perspective. Forget Catholics or Christians for a second. What, okay. what okay. is the anthropological human draw? to that show. Why did people want to watch that show at the deepest level? Even if they didn't know why, why were they watching it? Because it felt so incredibly real. Hmm. It felt, it, it pulled, it was, you could, you, there were such dimension. It showed real humanity. Sometimes in some pretty dark ways where I went like way, way, way too far. But I always go back to just the fact that, um, Anyone could die at any point in time. And the people at the beginning of the show that you absolutely hated, you grew to love, mm. like truly love. And that's, there are very things um, more human than that. And, and so, it was how so do you the draw think? of authenticity, the draw of what is true, what is real, even if it's not good, it's sort of this mm-hmm. sense of looking or longing for the authentic. Well, yeah. And how do you face darkness? Because throughout the from the beginning of this show, there's this oncoming this there um, is there is a darkness in in the form of the White Walkers that cannot be stopped, and it's in that episode where at the at the main character of that episode, I don't want to spoil it just in case. um, His like son. Okay, so like you know like so this this um, is Ned Stark. He's the main guy for the first almost season. 
until he dies. And it's like the most shocking thing I've ever I've ever experienced. Like the was protagonist like, is gone. The yeah, it's like killing Don Draper the first season of <laughs> right, Magnet. It's right. like what or like killing Alf the first like season right. of Alf. It's like Don just, Quixote eats it in chapter one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like what, what? How? I mean, I remember being like, I remember like, like in that episode as the blade is going down, going. I guess magic has got to stop this, and then it like it doesn't. And I, I just spit everywhere. I, was, I apologize for everyone who is watching. I was like, oh my gosh, they just killed. Um, who was it? Uh, Sean Bean was the actor. He was a great actor, and I think that feel of like. And so, anyways, in the in, in let me add this part. In the very end of the first episode, he's talking with um, his son, and like um, his, I think his son asked. Can you be uh, can you be brave if you are if you are if you are afraid and and then um, he responds with that's the only time that a man can can be brave mm. and that idea of like there's this darkness that is that is both that is like both like within me and that is there's a like an actual almost darkness in the form of the of the white walkers and the, the camera just stopped. Sorry about that again. I had no idea how to fix that. So here we are. Um, how do you face this darkness? And the darkness is not just this external thing. It's, it's also, I mean, it's a darkness of, of, of the human heart. Yeah. How do you, how do you face that? And I think the, the show, I don't necessarily like the answer that the show has to sure. that. I do like the process by which it tries to find those answers. Yeah. And it's also incredibly well made to crafted, right? So the writing, oh my gosh. the cinematography, I mean, it's like we forget how important these things are. It he made George like so the like so the author of the books and he was also um like right I don't think he was a showrunner, but he was an 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 executive producer and he, and he wrote some of the episodes. Um he made tax policy in um, in a, in like like fantasy world, interesting. <laughs> how do you do that? How do you like? That's what he did, you know. And, and, and that was how he almost started his, his books. Was he wanted to know, it, like, in the Lord of the Rings, which he loved. What was Aragorn's tax policy? How did that like? It, it, how did that? Uh, how did that um, influence his time as king? And someone like J.R.R. almost Tolkien, he's n- not too interested in that. Yeah. But this guy was, mm. and he built this whole, it's, it's, I, I think one of the reasons why I really hit was it is, it, um, is a, it is, it, it is a, a mythology disguised as history. Everything has a, there is so much, I mean, like I remember just, this is one of my, I, th- I think this also too cannot be uh, understated as well. So okay, there's a ton of like um backstory of this, and people are trying to are trying to see how is this show going to end? How what happens with like the White Walkers? Who ends up as king? This is we've been so invested, and everyone started to watch it. I'm with their friends, and I remember like me like I would go over to my buddy's house as for the last two seasons. I would drive a half hour on a on a Sunday night. We would go to my buddy's house, and we would um we would like watch an episode. Then we go to a parking lot and just like walk around and talk because mm. we didn't want to like, I'm going to wake up uh, like everybody at the house just for like hours about like, what was, and I was, and I think that that experience was also a big thing behind that, which was like, 
a lot of people just felt so invested in this world because it was just like so um, fascinating. It's a real gift to be able to write that way, right? Where you create serious cogency in the backstory. In the things mm-hmm. you don't have to be good at, you are good, right? So maybe that's actually a difference between GOT and the MCU is that it sounds like, and I'm not an expert on Game of Thrones, but um, the cogency of the backstory was so solid, right? It's sort of everything interlocked and made sense. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the MCU, mm-hmm. most of the criticism I see is like, I don't, I don't get it. And how did he get here? And what, why did this happen? And it seems forced that such and such ended up here when they were over Agreed. here in the last show. You know, it, 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 there's a lack of that cogency. A, a, a Catholic uh, version or just a good show that happens to be Catholic or Christian anyway, The Chosen, I think does that well too, where the backstories are very cogent. They, they make a lot of sense, right? And there's cool. a lot of discussion and commentary you can have about these things that are ex-scriptural, right? They're not necessarily in the pages of the Bible, but they make sense. It all kind of locks in and it adds to this whole experience in a way that's not explicit, but but just delivered in any case across every episode. I've heard, I have not watched that on my show. And that's that's really one of those things where... Uh, it's it's really just been a, a time thing, um, but I've heard such good things about it for people for just for the for that for that very reason that it is a you feel like you're just immersed in this world, yeah, and it's just great and and like it is of its time. I am sure. Like I um I had to write a paper in college on the gunfight at the OK Corral and some of the stuff around that. And I don't know where I came across this, but I like I had some article that I that I, I read that called the film Tombstone, which I love. Yeah. The greatest um, 90s Western ever. And it says that it's, it like yeah. it's a 90s film that has all the aesthetics, has all the things of like a 90s film just set as a Western. Yeah. I, I love I mean, I like me and my friends to this day still quote. I'm your Huckleberry. Like, like just that film was, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, it, um, uh, what was my point of this? I'm so sorry. This is what I chosen sometimes. Oh yeah. Like it just, it's, you're just, you are immersed in this thing that feels so unreal and it's of, it's of our time. Yeah. So it's, it's like our, it's our, it, it is a, I don't think it like, I don't think, again, I, I haven't watched it so I could be wrong, but everything that I have, I'm read about it. And it's actually, I, I've read it like I'm a decent amount. Like it's it's told through the voice of our time set during this time period there and it and it is exploring all of these things, which I think is a good thing. Like what was Saint what was Saint Peter like? What was his personality like? What, what was their background? Yeah. Like, that's kind of interesting. I it's think that's very, really it's very cool. true. And and it, and one example of that is um, you know, St. Matthew in the Chosen series. I mean, they never say this, and nor have I read it, but because I have an autistic child, I can tell you that he's on the spectrum. The character is on the spectrum. I've heard that. Yeah, he's autistic. On people, yeah. I mean, and it, and it's like, sure, yeah, I, I get it. And I understand that personality type, and I get it. And it adds such shape to that yeah. character. And it's it's fascinating the way that they developed that. Um, I had Jonathan on the show. I had Jonathan Rumi on the show. And, oh, and, cool. And, and Excellent. One of the things that I said to him, even before he was on the show, the first time I met him, um, after watching three episodes of the shows, the first three episodes, the first one's a little slow, but by the time you get to three, I got it. And I, and when I first met him, I was like, I totally get it. He's like, what? I was like, the show, I totally get it. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, it's HBO, if, if HBO wrote the story of the disciples. Yeah. Like that, that's, to, that's a way to encapsulate qualitatively what it was, the mm-hmm. writing, 
the sort of uh, cogency of the backstory, right? It, it, it was just something that, generally speaking, is not constructed well by Catholic, uh, Christian or Catholic media. Just the, those are the parts that they're like, let's just get the guy and put a camera up and we'll have him read these lines. It's like, no, 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 no. There's like, we've gone so much farther than that. Okay. Like yeah. you have to really care about this stuff. And it's all about the writing. The writing mm -hmm. is what does all of it. But so, Agreed. so that, so I agree with you. It is very much sort of made for our time, sort of in our time for our time. And it's a subgenre of whatever time we're in that we will define decades from now. It's got that vibe for sure. But it's, um, it, it just, it, one of the things, and I honestly, to, like I'm discovering this literally as we're having this conversation that I think is part of its magic is the same thing you talked about with GOT, which is this kind of congruency of the backstory and how that mm -hmm. in, a, in a way is almost more interesting than what the characters are explicitly doing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, there's a scene in Game of Thrones that I love. It's the, in my opinion, the last great episode of it. It's the almost um, second episode of the eighth um, season. And there is a character um, right before this like huge battle. He almost um, sings a song and it is called, it's uh, called like Jenny's song. And it's basically about this huge fire that like, that like um, happens that kills all these people who are trying to um, prophesize about like, uh, like like futures whole thing about like, you know, like basically it is a song about a person who's like Icarus. He like tries to fly to like close to, to the sun and dies. This is the person who like, <clears throat> I'm sorry about that, who got too, his power got too big and basically like flew too high and just killed all these people. And it fit the tone of the show. And so if you didn't know anything about that, you're like, this just, this song just feels like this is like, it's a, it's a song about a horrible thing. And it's being on the, it's being on the sung right before this horrible thing is like about to happen. <clears throat> sorry. My throat is incredibly dry. Uh, anyways, but like, if you didn't know what that song was, it, it was the first time you ever heard the whole version because the only one in the book was a, like what it was a, a person, um, they like sing it and they say they don't know that the other half has been lost, but it then ties into the main character of the show at, the, at that point. It was like, it was this huge thing where I'm like, if you understand what is going on, this is the greatest thing that have, that's ever like happened mm. in like television, you know? And that's, and I love that stuff where it, um, if you, I love um, subtext and I love when you can yeah. peel beneath what's really going on. It's super powerful. And I, um, I'm just a really big fan of, um, stuff that like has all sorts of meeting that is just yeah. like, an, and that's why like I'm catching foxes. I, I think why one of the reasons why we started the podcast was we were just like, this is too hard. We need to talk about this. Like, it's just hard to be a, I'm a Christian. And the only way to really, I feel like we could do that in a way that was going to, a, I don't know if appeal to people is the right word, but to like, at least, um, at least create enough content. Was that, was that the intersection of um, faith and culture? Yeah. I think that's a great starting point. And no yeah. doubt the reason why it's been as successful as it has been. It really um, like, yeah. Can I can I can I do like a quick do what I'm a humble brag? Of course. The two in my career, I've done a lot of things I'm like really proud of. But as it relates to the podcast, the two highlights for me was when on two separate occasions, both Brandon Vaught for Film Like World on Fire, and yep. then as as like uh, as uh, uh, as well as Katie 
pre-Jean, uh, pre-Jean, uh, pre-Jean McGrady yep. told us, like, we basically changed Catholic on um, podcasting. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, we did. Like, it was, it was, it was like, I cannot tell you how much our show started as an act of desperation on my part. Like, utter clinging for just, I don't even know what. I mean, I do know, but it's just a lot too. I mean, I'm yeah, but think think about how many great things have started from that. You know, that point, right? This sort of yeah. existential yeah. angst that well, led it, to a it, lot of things. Yeah, yeah, and it just and and for me, it's it's yeah. You're right. How like art needs tension. Mm. You have to have it. Like the best art tends to come out of the most tense filled environments at times. Not that you should think about um culture or anything, but like you know what I mean. Like like we're gonna try. To, I'm gonna push ourselves pretty much here, and I think um. For us, there was just this, like, uh, we we wanted to pull from all the podcasts that we loved. And we didn't want to make the Catholic um, a version of it. We just wanted to do that with, with, like, our voice that we knew was going to be Catholic. Yeah, and that's it. <clears throat> I mean, you guys are kind of like a, a, a best practice or a case study in, in this theory, right? Which is uh, not necessarily a Catholic show, but a Catholic voice. Uh, and I think that's maybe a, a, a solid takeaway because um, that might be even the title of this episode, Luke, is nice. Catholic Voices, uh, Not Shows. I love um, it. Because I think that's that's kind of one thing that we don't see enough of and that gets to the heart of the matter and gets and really is, a, is an output of this idea of leading an integrated Catholic life, right? Mm-hmm. Sharing that yep. voice in whatever you're discussing, whatever you're talking about is always a Catholic voice, or at least it should be. And striving for that to be the case, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. We titled the show. Okay. So l- last thing, this is because we, we got to get into this because here I can go toe to toe with you. Let's what do it. is your favorite Coen Brothers film? Inside, uh, inside, Lewin Davis. Of course, you were going to go for like an obscure one. I thought you were going to say hard. Big Lebowski. I, I'm upset. <laughs> no, I like the Big Lebowski. I like. Okay, if, if I were to say, uh, I, I can't put anything above inside Amalou and Davis. It is my, I think about that film once a week. I can give you my sort of obscure choice because I've got a variety. So Hudsucker Proxy is my like obscure, obscure-er choice. Yeah. Just yep. love that. I love the whole epoch of the film, right? The, mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. period. I yeah. love all of the trappings of that era. Character development is super rich. The idea is kind of ludicrous. I, lo- I love all of it. It's just amazing. <laughs> And the pace of that film is so much fun. Yeah, it is. True. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Big Lebowski is, I mean, just comedy gold, but it's so much deeper than just comedy. It's an insult to call it just comedy. Right. Agree. I mean, oh, totally agree. And, and it is, it is, uh, it's one of those movies that when I see, like on an airplane, I fly a lot. <clears throat> and the Big Lebowski is inevitably within like the all films part of the button, you know, yeah. not like the yep. newly released or anything like that. It's like deep in the <laughs> yeah. catalog somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, I got to watch it for the 700th time. I'll, I'll tell you a little funny story as an aside, because um, this movie's now, how old is this movie? 20 plus years. 20, right? I mean, yeah, I think it came out. I think I was in high school, like late on oh, 90s, like 98 or 99. So yeah. So five years. I was just out of college. Yeah, 98. You're right. 98. I'm looking at it right now. So um, I would have been fresh out of college, right? Kind of like first jobs kind of thing. But I remember when I first moved to California, I moved to California in 2000. 
And this was at, at my height of the beginning appreciation for the Coen brothers and for this film in particular. And I remember that there's a scene. I don't know if you remember that. You probably remember every part of this movie, but just for the, maybe for the audience, there's this opening scene. And in this kind of very, there's, there's a Western almost woven into every Coen brothers movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some way yeah. there's like some little Western aesthetic. Yep. yep. And there's this kind of tumbleweed scene opening credits. And then we kind of pan into the protagonist of this story. That's Jeff Lebowski known as the dude. And he's this, just kind of this taking it easy guy for the rest of the world, right? And he's walking the aisles of Ralph's, which is an institution in California. It's the supermarket <laughs> mm-hmm. out here, right? And he gets a carton a half and half because it goes with his favorite uh, alcoholic cocktail, right? So he's buying this carton a half and half and he walks up to the cash register and he writes a check for like 98 <laughs> <right>. cents. <laughs> but here, here's the thing, Luke, ready? In the check, the address... You know how it says like his name and it's got an address? Yeah. My buddy and I looked up that address and went there in Venice, California, okay, That's which is amazing. near to where I live. And not only was that address real, it was the actual apartment where they shot the scenes of him being No home. way. Yes. Oh, they are so good. You want to talk about script continuity? Jeez. I mean, that's insane. They are so good. That's insane. And it, and it is, is a fraction of a second shot. I mean, in, in 19, in 2000, we were like pausing the VCR and trying to zoom this before all the digital stuff. And we're like reading this, we're writing it out. We're trying to decipher it like on a Drogan's decoder wheel. And we got like the address and we're like, this can't be real. This can't be a real address. And we go there and it was real. And it was that, it was the actual apartment building. Oh my gosh. Down to the, to the apartment number. Yeah. So have you heard, um, I know we probably have to answer and so I will keep this brief. Like. I believe The Big Lebowski is meant to be a noir film, right? Yeah. That, like, that's, like, that's the genre that they are playing with. They turn it into, like, a, like, like this is what, what they're great. They, they basically, like, how Steve Martin played with tension, they will play with, like, genre. They will bend but not break. Yeah. To the point where it's almost unrecognizable, but then it's like, oh, so I think like like noir film, like it's almost where you have the you um, have the main um, characters almost in every shot, right? Isn't that not like like part of um noir? It's part of it. And so like there's they'll have they'll um have Lebowski's car is like driving in the background or something of a couple different um shots, Ooh. so he's in like all of it, almost. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just like the stuff that they do that like. It's almost like they're just doing it because they want to make this thing and they hope that people will enjoy well, it. Well, they also like, know that there's people because of their films that are looking for those Easter eggs, right? There, totally, there's like that's all also of true. these like yeah. uh, little su- surprise and delight things because they know that they have audiences in a bunch of different like uh, levels. You know, you got the sort of broad audience. So you got the real hardcore people that are looking for that script, yeah. script continuity thing. So, yeah, I love that film. What's what's the worst Coen, Bo- Coen Brothers movie? Ooh, ooh. Um, okay, I'm going to say this, and I don't know if I believe it. Okay, so I'm going to, um, I like this, but it's the one that I care about the least out of all that I watch, and it would be, oh, brother, where art thou? Wow, I did not expect right? that. I know. I, that's why I'm like, it. I can't believe, like, it just, for, yeah. there's something about it where I'm like, I like George Clooney, I like, I like the music, I'm just not ever going to watch it. Yeah. It just, for, there's some, and I, I understand why it's great. It makes complete sense. I just, and I may go through like a phase where I, where it like, you know, hits me on like another, on a level, but I will watch, um, 
I will uh, watch like Miller's Crossing. Miller's I think Crossing. it's called. I, yeah. I love that. I, yeah. I got that. I'll, I, uh, a true grid is almost at that point Yeah. for me where I'm probably not going to go back and watch it, but there's th- certain things about that that I like, I'm like more. I like their thing on, on the, um, on like Netflix. I think, uh, like serious. Anyways, I don't, like, yeah, it just, it's a one that I will go back to the least. So you said your favorite is, uh, inside of Llewellyn Davis. Inside of Llewellyn um, Davis, yeah. yeah. With my speech impediment, it's a little hard to say inside. So I'm always like, buckle up, everyone. Right. No. Yeah. No worries. My 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 uh, least favorite is also a Clooney. By the way, Clooney's in a bunch of them. Burn after reading and mm-hmm. uh, that's oh, Brother War Thou, etc. Yeah. My least favorite. Only seen it once. Never had a desire to watch it again. Was Intolerable Cruelty. When did that come out? Um, let me see if I can. This was early knots. So maybe okay. two or three, okay. maybe something yeah. in that vicinity. I don't know. It's like Clooney just was doing Clooney to me. It just felt like, it, it, I don't know. Like in, like in, in, in A Brother Where Art Thou, he's definitely not the archetypal Clooney character with the little thing. And, you know, it's like, the, yeah. you know, uh, Ocean's Eleven kind of vibe of, so it's, it's a very unusual thing for him. You could, I mean, similarly in Burn After Reading, but, um, but yeah, in Tall Rec- I just, I just never got it. Lady Killers is also like, eh, and, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I never got into that one either, but, um, but yeah, my go-to is, uh, is Big Lebowski. My buddy who was also a Cohen's nut, his was Barton Fink. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's that one's a fast. So that's the film that really I had to watch that in my fine arts course I took mm. um, at Franciscan where I went to undergrad, and that was where it, actually my professor who taught the class he was like, "This is the one a movie I like," because he didn't respect film as an art form. Really? So, yeah, he. I guess it was a whole thing like back in the day about how it's not actually um, high art or um, it's not like fine art. And, yeah. um, Scorsese's got the modern version of that argument, which is that the movies we have today are actually not film. Not that I, film is not art, but that they're not film. I, I, 40 to 45% agree with him. Okay. But when, and I know we're, we are probably pressed for time, so we don't have to go down this road if you don't have time. But yeah, because I, I think, like, here, I'll, I'll, let me just add, add this unpack it. What are they saying? Like, that's the hard part about a lot of these films is they're not really saying. Sometimes they do. And you, if once you start to, and like we did this um, with I'm Catching Foxes, we called it The Road to Infinity War. We went through all of the Marvel films up to, this was before Infinity War came out. And we said, what's this about? Like, we wouldn't, it was not like a, let's like um, rehash the plot. Let's talk about all the um, cool effects. It's what is Iron Man about? Mm -hmm. What are the themes? What's, what's, why does this film like, what is this film of like? What? How does this make? How is my life better by by like I'm watching Iron Man, <clears throat> and for some of those films, it's like pretty easy to do. But for some, that they are they are kind of hard, and it's gotten to the point where it's more about the spectacle of the whole thing, and that is where I I understand why his whole point was like they're more like amusement rides, mm. and yeah, I, it's a fireworks think, display. Yeah, and like what really bums me out, to be honest, I'm with you, and I don't really blame the the MCU because I love, the, I think it's great that they have this like built in um, that they have the um, that they have a um, shared universe. I think that is fan fantastic. It there are times when I really want it, and there are times when I don't, 
And I, I just think it's a bummer that now everyone's trying to do that. Yeah. They're trying to build it. And it's like, why can't this just be like almost oh, like a genre? Yeah. It's basically synergy gone amok. Yeah. It's the impact of the Disney company on the acquisition of Marvel, in my opinion. It's Marvel drinking the Disney Kool-Aid. I worked there for six years. I ought to know. I was fully indoctrinated. Synergy really? was invented by That's the Walt true. Disney Company. That is, yes, that right? is true. So this idea of like maximizing, overlapping, and the driver is economic. The driver yeah. is marketing. And if you sell your soul for money, well, you know the rest of that story. Can I ask you a quick, I'm um, a Disney question? Yeah. Have you eaten at Club Table 33? No, Club sorry, 33. Club 33. Yeah, nope, never was allowed in. <sighs> I yep. sat outside of it one time when I was at Disneyland. I was just like, my life's goal is to, is to go there. Yeah. Like, the trippy thing about uh, Disney when you work there, and I was an executive there. I was a vice president there, which at Disney, it doesn't, that doesn't mean a lot in media to say VP because they have like VPs that park your car, okay, in yeah. media. Yeah. But at Disney, it was still a relatively flat organization. So VP, for what it's worth, meant something. Um, one of the, the perks of Disney, and Disney packages their benefits in a way that helps the indoctrination. Right. Um, okay. And one of the okay. benefits was this thing called a silver card. You ever heard of this? I don't ref tell me what it is. I feel like I have, but I don't remember. Yeah. It's basically, it's like a credit card and, and employees, which are called cast members. So there are no employees at Disney. Mm -hmm. You're cast members. You're all part of this story that we're telling. So it's, it's a very deep, like there's a, there, there's whole books about it. It's, it's quasi religious. No question yeah. about yep. it. Okay, yep. so so as a cast member, you get this card, and it's called a silver pass. And as you're driving onto the lot, you just flash it. It's kind of like FBI credentials, okay? And every other cast member at the park knows what the silver card means. And the silver card entitles you in varying degrees because it's, it's also super hierarchical. The company is super hierarchical, which is really interesting huh. at this moment in time. But yeah, what it does very. is it, when you flash it, you're basically allowed in you plus three anytime you want. I think it's actually technically for the level that I had, it was 24 times a year. So twice a month, anywhere in the world, any park in the world, you just like flash it and then just like open up the velvet rope. Right. So, huh. so it's, it's this, um, they really build on this idea, right? This sort of credentializing, you know, making you, they, they, they kind yeah. of puff you up a little bit. The hierarchical yeah. piece, trip on this, the hierarchical piece is that it applies to all the other benefits, right? So for instance, company car, right? At my level, when I got in, I was a director. And at that level, they gave you a company car. If you were under that senior manager, manager, et cetera, you didn't get one. Mm -hmm. But the kind of car that I could get as a director was any of the sort of full-size fleet of General Motors who they had a strategic alliance with. The moment I got my mm -hmm. VP stripe, the whole class of automobile changed. And then, you huh. know, up until the top, you know, EVP, SVP, that kind of thing, it yeah. opened up this whole new panoply of, of opportunities. So they're like super hierarchical and they're intentional about it. And like, nobody says anything about it. It's like, it's not about equity. You know what I mean? They're like perfectly fine with it. So there's all of this really interesting Disney uh, mythology that you kind of begin to yeah. to absorb. See, I I've done some deep dives into that. I was I went through like a phase where I was really obsessed with the Disney storytelling aspect, with with like how the parks are and how you like when like when you know you are I'm leaving. It's like it's like the end credits and all that stuff and just that whole thing. 
But it's really interesting how you, you talked about how it is on the Disney that has just made it about this ongoing story because you're right. Like that's what the Disney brand is like this large story it that is. doesn't ever end. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges with like, I think one of the things that's really hurting the, the, M, the MCU was not Bob Iger, but the guy who he, the guy who was there for a bit, um, Bob Chapek, whatever. Bob Chapek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanting to just increase the insane amount of content on to Disney plus. Yeah. And it was just, and the thing about what makes the MCU good is of course there are insanely talented actors, particularly um, the like um, writers slash like directors. I am almost thinking of James Gunn specifically, but um, is a guy like Kevin Feige. Yep. who's the main voice. Yep. Right. <clears throat> like I think really good art always has like one main voice. And even the Beatles, like you can tell when it's Paul and like, and when it's John and what's good there was like, you had two guys who could be that. And then, but like, it was always, I mean, one of those guys were, was, was the main voice and all of the, that increase in content pulled like Kevin Feige to like, it basically, it basically um, pulled him out to, of how he was involved. That doesn't make any sense. He was not involved as he was because he had to be on like all these. He had to, he couldn't he could not uh, he could not be everywhere. So it's that glut of um story, that glut of um content, that's really hurting the um the the MCU brand. Yeah. So, and, and and I think um, Bob Iger, who's the new CEO slash old CEO, um, recognizes some of that. Right. He wants he's he's definitely drawn in the reins on how much of a good thing you can have, right? Because of that sort of uh, watering down effect that it tends to have on 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 story. And yeah. a lot of that was just them kind of uh, releasing parallel storylines using Disney Plus with Mandalorian, with Ahsoka, mm-hmm. with all these different things that they're doing now. And there's only so much of that you can do uh, before you're letting a lot of the air the pent-up demand out of the bubble right and they've they've always that's been part of the disney dna is actually to do the opposite to tamp down things have people wait and expect there used to be this thing called the disney vault famously Mm -hmm. in the content side where people would take the ip they'd put it out there for a little bit and then they draw it back literally from every screen known to man across the world it was like you just couldn't get it yeah and then they would build it up the demand again then they'd like put it out again and boom explosion that's been kind of messed with, right? That wheel, that, that flywheel has been kind of monkeyed with. And, and I think you start seeing, when you're at a scale that size, monkeying a little bit with something has like major downstream effects. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that's a whole show. I'm going to have to bring you back to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I have so many questions. <laughs> about, about Disney. We'll do a Disney special. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I know, I know I got to get you on your way and, uh, uh, and I do too. Um, you know, just last sort of point. Sure. You know, share with folks what you're excited about. New stuff on catching foxes, new projects, things like yeah. that. Where can folks follow you? The folks who don't know, and you guys get you know tons of uh, listeners, obviously. But for maybe sure. folks who want to get in touch. So uh, we did a terrible thing. We got rid of all of our almost social media, which was great in the moment, bad for marketing. Yeah. <laughs> so, Turns uh, out, <laughs> yeah. The like honestly, we're on all podcasting platforms that is that is the best way we do we do um have a website uh it is it uh it uh, is a catching um foxes.fm catching foxes.fm we we do have a patreon that that is uh patreon.com slash um cf as i said like a thousand times but that's only if you want to like um support us which we would love your money um 
you, whoever's out there. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm really excited about like we you know we almost we almost um ended a couple of months ago. We it was probably mm. like this. We just like the well was dry, mm. and we had a lot of stuff going on just like within our like um, own lives that was like this is really hard to keep going because it is like it's like having a business on top of a family on top of being in grad school on, on top of, of you know work. it's like yeah it's a ton of work and so. And it, and um and we like are still best friends somehow, which is insane that we've it's like helped it hasn't hurt our friendship, which is just um wild to me. But um and then but we were like, you know what, we love doing this. We love, we love each other, we love doing this, let's keep doing it. And I think we j- just found a renewed enthusiasm to just have the conversations that like we uh, that we want to have. And I'm excited about what about what's in the future because i think we're really starting to push for more like okay what else what can we take the like what can we take the like our brand if if you will which is all about i'd say the intersection of the intellect and and the vulnerable where can we take that yeah we should definitely have a discussion offline about that i've got some yes yes i'm really excited please come and um, listen we have a um uh we've had tons of people on the show that it's it's we've we're almost at four we're almost at four hundred episodes. It's wild. That's awesome. Yeah, ten million um downloads. I can't believe it. That's crazy. Real, yeah, well, real blessing. Well, look, Luke, our uh, our prayers is for the continued prosperity of that show and of your voices, right? Your Catholic voices to be Thank out you. in a variety of different permutations, formats, experiences, screens, whatever that might be, because I think it's good for the world, especially for us right now. So I really appreciate you uh, coming and spending some time with me on the show. Yeah, this has been great. I'm so, I I um I apologize if, if I went too long. And all it's it's the catching foxes way. No, it's I dig just it. go and go. If we and had go more time, like, we'd go. But I think we both. <laughs> I've got an eleven, which is in 115 seconds. Yeah, so, go. No, go. Uh, go. But, You're uh, fine. But let's continue the conversation. Disney, MMA, pop culture, Catholic stuff, ecclesiology, theology. I'm down. So if you're down, you're welcome back yeah. anytime. Yeah, no, and uh, let's let's actually get you on to Catching Foxes. Yeah, I dig it. That would That's be awesome. a great place to actually ha- have the Disney But we chat. have to do it in your studio there in Fort Wayne. Unless oh. you're in L.A. We, I'll, no, you, can well, use you know what's funny? This is just, I'm just here because I'm here to, I'm, I'm here to speak with donors. So it's just worked out. There you yeah, go. We should, we should go to um, L.A. All right. Sorry. Well, big, well, big shout out go. also to Spoke Street, who produces this show. Um, yeah, and oh, that's and, right. and uh and where you now work. So they've been really great partners and uh, we love them as well. All right, folks. If you're listening to our voices, that means it is time to follow this episode. And I think you should share this episode maybe with that Game of Thrones fans, or maybe with somebody who really thinks Game of Thrones is a terrible idea for Catholics. Either way, I think they're gonna enjoy it. And and more importantly, with people who uh can understand the value of this idea of Catholic voices and their importance out in the world. Uh real privilege to have you on the show, Luke, and uh God bless you. you and God bless everybody. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.